Welcome to the Minimum Viable Podcast, a project of the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum. Our mission is to inspire, connect, and empower people in order to promote a culture of innovation in the U.S. national security community. You can learn more about DEF and get involved at DEF.org. That's D-E-F dot O-R-G. We look forward to your ideas and are excited to connect you with other doers working on hard problems. All right, good evening, and thanks for joining us tonight at the DEF DC Agora Fireside Chat featuring Mark Jacobson. And uh, the lead for the discussion tonight will be DEF's Executive Director, Michael Madrid. And uh, very fortunate to have our guest with us tonight. Our other moderator is Becca, the mother of kittens, the butts. Uh, she's going to help us keep up with the chat and with the questions and uh, queue things up for the Q&A. So for those that are out there in the audience, that this is your first deaf event, welcome. Uh, if it's many, many events for you, welcome as well. And uh, be sure to tell your friends and, and invite more people here because at deaf, we're here to inspire, connect and empower our membership. And, uh, Tonight, the great thing about that is we have not only the executive director, but with Mark Jacobson, we have one of the founders of Defense Entrepreneurs Forum. And uh, if you forget the three words, you can do like I did and cheat and just look off the patch here. So we need some more of these for swag so everybody can have one. Um, so the Def DSC Agora, uh, we're just getting things spun back up here in the last few months, getting it ready for hopefully have some in-person events here coming this summer. So third Thursdays, mark your calendars. That, that's kind of our standing event. Uh, last week was the kickoff, though, of the new Bay Area Agora. And that happened to fall on our regular DEF DC night. So we slid it over to this Thursday. Uh, but keep an eye out for us at the same bat time, same bat channel next month, third Thursday, starting at 6.30 p.m. That is our normal kickoff time. So now that we mentioned kickoff, I'm going to kick it over to Mike Madrid to do some introductions. Thank you, Dan. Uh, that was a perfect kickoff, so I don't need to say too much about uh, DEF or the DC Agora, except to say thank you uh, to you and Rebecca for leading this local community. Cheers. Uh, and I appreciate um, you letting me pitch you an idea for, for some content for your Agora uh, event of the month. And I'm really glad we put this together together, uh, together, together. And uh, so without further ado, I'm going to briefly introduce um, our guest of honor tonight. Uh, Mark D. Jacobson is an Air Force officer and professor of strategy and innovation. He's directing the innovation course at SAS right now. He holds a PhD in political science from Stanford University and has spent his career building and leading teams to tackle wicked problems at the intersection of technology and politics. He has death written all over him, doesn't he? He also writes fiction and nonfiction about grappling with complex, uncertain futures. Uh, he lives in Montgomery, Alabama with his wife and three children. I'll also throw in that he's a rock climber uh, and that I have had the, the privilege and honor of knowing Mark for a long time now. Um, he was a founding member and on the founding board of the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum. He planned uh, that first conference in Chicago in 2013 uh, and I have been able to witness uh, some of the things he talks about in his book and that we'll talk about tonight, uh, some from afar uh, and some a little bit closer, um, but it was wonderful uh, for me to read his book uh, and reflect on the, the themes he has there. I think they 
apply to all of us as we um, aspire to be entrepreneurs, as we aspire to be intrapreneurs. Um, and I think the lessons are uh, relevant to all of us just as humans, because we all experience the things that Mark talks about in this book. Um, so uh, with that brief introduction out of the way, I'm going to hand it over to Mark to, to uh, tell a little bit of his story. Um, we're going to get to hear a little bit from the book itself. Uh, we've got some themes that we, we laid out ahead of time that we thought would be interesting to explore, but I definitely encourage you, uh, if you're here with us live during the recording, to put questions in the Q&A function or in the chat and Zoom. Uh, and if you're listening to the podcast, that's your incentive to actually show up to these things live. You get to participate. So uh, bring your questions for Mark. And uh, now over to you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Dan and Rebecca, for hosting. It's really a pleasure to be back here. I think if you've been in innovation for a while, one of the things you, you learn is that nothing ever moves in a straight line the way you think it will. So you just sort of plant seeds and, and stuff just starts growing. So it's that first DEF conference I met Ensign you weren't even an incident, you were a midshipman, weren't you? Midshipman Madrid, uh, and here he is the executive director, and uh, it's been great to kind of watch DEF grow from the sidelines. So really appreciate you hosting me tonight. So I'm gonna talk for five or 10 minutes telling a bit of my story, and I see some of my friends and family here, which is great. You've heard the story, and some of you I don't know, DEF members who I hope we'll, we'll be able to take some lessons from it, but this will give you some context for, for why I wrote the book and, and why it might matter to anyone who does entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship um, and some of the personal journey involved in that. Can you guys see my slides okay? Great. So I am an Air Force officer, C-17 pilot by background. I'm also a Middle East specialist who speaks Arabic and I've always done side projects throughout my career, doing a lot of technology, software development, and so forth. Um, and my, my story starts around 2013, 2014. I was in Turkey doing research on the Syrian civil war when the Syrian government started starving out entire cities to break their will. A photograph was released by Amnesty International of Yarmouk a suburb of Damascus showing a rare bread line food delivery for a population that was being starved out. Snipers were shooting children who were foraging for weeds to feed their families. Imams were issuing fatwas, authorizing families to eat cats and dogs. And people asked me as an Air Force cargo pilot, why doesn't the Air Force do something? Why can't the United States just airdrop cargo? And you can't just airdrop cargo in the middle of war zones without destroying the entire air defense system first. Uh, they'll get shot down. But that really wasn't good enough for me as I was over there meeting Syrian refugees as an Arabic speaker, as someone who does technology, and as someone who delivers cargo. I thought surely in the 21st century, there must be some way to get aid into these places. And that set me on about a two-year process of trying to develop a concept that I called swarming airlift. If you can't get one big cargo plane through, maybe you can get a bunch of small planes through, each carrying a few pounds. I use the metaphor of an army of ants moving a picnic lunch. Um, this was incredibly difficult work. It was very early emerging technology. We had no money, it was just an idea in my head. I saw this as a military capability, but as any defense entrepreneur knows, it's really hard to start something novel inside the government. So we really started building this in my garage. I was ordering radio control planes and autopilots. I had a background um, 
largely thanks to my dad who's on tonight, uh, building robots and I learned a lot of the skills. So I, I was really trying to just bootstrap this and learn what we could do. Um, I headed off to Stanford to get a PhD where I had access to some phenomenal talent. And actually at the, I guess it was the second Dev conference, I met uh, Jesse Muberry, who's here tonight, who had nonprofit experience and she essentially took over and built a nonprofit around the idea, Uplift Aeronautics. So we went through a very painstaking learning curve and anyone who's done a big uh, entrepreneurship project, you know how it is, all the setbacks and learning and failures. And I had read all the books. I, I dreamed about being an entrepreneur my entire life. I had my Stephen Pressfield in hand. I knew about battling resistance. I knew about failing fast, failing forward, failing often. I had my big, hairy, audacious goal. Um, we had a cause that could inspire people and, you know, through all the struggles, we, we gradually got better. We got to the point we could deliver a pound or two of cargo from a drone at over hundred kilometer range, fully autonomously. Um, and we really felt like we were on the verge of being able to do something. Um, as our team came together and the technology came together, we really had a big, th this was the moonshot. We wanted to get one package onto the rooftop of a hospital in Syria. If we could get one plane over the border and prove the paradigm, you know, one kg won't make a big difference, but we could validate the concept and, and create a whole new way of thinking about airdrop that could scale. So to prove this concept, we wanted to do a demo and we did this in the United States in Sacramento. I know a guy who runs an Arab refugee center and we spent two days teaching regular families, Iraqi and Syrian refugees, how to operate the planes for humanitarian delivery. Um, we had women making parachutes out of garbage bags. We had children uh, decorating boxes with messages of hope and healing, showing that this wasn't just about the aid, it was about building a movement to bring some healing back into the country. And this event went beautifully. Our planes flew perfect, the technology worked. We had a BBC film crew filming. People got it, they saw the vision, and we showed that we could actually do this. It was maybe, the most perfect experience of my entire life, all those months of effort paying off. Uh, but there was, there was a dark side to all of this, which is that we were badly burning out, especially me and my lead engineer. We were all volunteers. We were fueled on our passion. We had no resources. Um, we were not profit driven. So it was very hard to build a sustainable business model. And we'd been working so hard for so long while we were PhD students and doing other things that we were starting to break down. Um, but we knew that to take the next step, we needed to try and replicate this demo in Turkey, which I do think was an achievable goal. And the only time to do that was in the summer, a few months after the event, but we needed money. So we had one chance to fundraise when the BBC video of this event came out and we ended up running a crowdfunding campaign, um, to do that. And I was very nervous about this because I knew how overstretched we were and the political and legal issues are incredibly complex as you can imagine. And they were getting worse over time. Uh, as ISIS, the Islamic State came on, it was getting harder and harder to access Turkey. Uh, the politics were getting ugly. So we were raising money for something that I didn't know if we could pull off. Um, but I, again, I've read the books, be bold and you know, don't give up in these moments, double down and you know, you got to take risks. And so we, we were trying to do the right thing of just pushing the envelope with the possible. Um, but we were under strain. And then this happened. We crashed a drone at Stanford and it caught fire in a dry lake bed. And uh, I burned down three acres of Stanford. 
they barely got the fire contained in the lake bed. We were very lucky if they hadn't, it would have been a pretty devastating wildfire that would have affected a lot of Silicon Valley. And that pretty much broke me. It was kind of the culminating event of a long process where um, it just really broke me down. And, and one of the things I, I realized is failure isn't just a one-time event. It wasn't like we just missed a goal. I was still in the captain seat for the next five months as we had all this crowdfunded money sitting in our account and expectations and commitments that we'd sort of accumulated that we could not make good on. And we had all these leadership decisions of what to do and how to do it. Um, the stress on the team, we had some conflict in our board a little bit. And it, all this stuff was compounding. And, and as I talk about failure now, I, I describe it not just as missing an achievement, but failure has a second meaning. It can also mean like material failure. You stress something to its breaking point. And what happened in my life was I got stretched to a breaking point where something gave. And I think this is something that every person goes through in life in various ways, whether entrepreneurship or in personal life or in any other thing where you just sort of something breaks and it, your capacity to keep doing the things you've always done is, is sort of reduced. Um, and this sort of continued to affect every part of my life. Uh, I was in my PhD program, but I'd, I had made a lot of sacrifices to pursue this project. I'd, I had Air Force supporters, but my immediate chain of command was adamantly opposed to me doing anything other than my PhD. And eventually my Stanford faculty wrote me a letter saying, hey, you're not gonna graduate unless you knock this off. And at that point I resigned and Jesse took over and dissolved the nonprofit. Uh, and I would like to report that that brought immediate uh, healing but really it started about a, a two-year process of what I call being in the wilderness of just trying to kind of survive as I was trying to wrap up my PhD program and um, just deal with a lot of the, the, the inner process of, of what I just experienced. I'd kind of walked away from a lot of aspects of my career to do this innovation project and, and everything kind of just came to a halt. And uh, I, yeah, it was just, it was a hard time. And, and what I realized when you go through a failure like this uh, recovery isn't instantaneous. It is a very long process that moves through many different stages, just like maybe recovering from grief uh, does. And you meet entrepreneurs who go through this. Not everyone has a, has a fall quite this hard, but it's a common enough experience that it's part of the entrepreneurial journey that, that's a pattern and it's something we don't talk about very much. So I got really passionate about, you know, kind of walking through my own experience, how we learn from this, but also helping others uh, because once you're in this place, you're in a place that no one has really warned you about. Um, and, and I had a lot of trouble after having read all the entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship books, uh, how do I make sense of this? Um, eventually, I, you know, things did start moving again. Um, one of the big developments was uh, the Islamic State started weaponizing drones and I got picked up. I, I wrote an article about the things I'd learned and the Defense Innovation Unit read this article and they invited me to come in and give a talk and a show and tell. And I got hired there, long story. Uh, and I went on to start essentially a second startup we called Rogue Squadron, because I'm a nerd. And we basically were a, a red team that acted like bad guys to show all the nefarious things drones could do to help DOD be a better uh, consumer and, and deal with the problem set. And we actually got drawn into software development and capability development. And over the next two years, um, really grew this into a successful team really at the forefront of a lot of the interagency efforts to fight drones. So there was a, 
uh, I would say a, a redemption here, or a, you know, a success. But but I also learned that um, you know, we often talk about just failing your way to success. That's great, but it's not always that easy. I think we find in life that we often move through an oscillation between these periods of achievement and things going well, and between things kind of falling apart. And um, this team went really well. I had learned a ton from Uplift, uh, gained a lot of wisdom from it. I was able to lead more effectively in a more healthy way. Um, but we had plenty of challenges to overcome. And, and even my involvement in this team came to a pretty um, painful end, which is a story for another day. But just, you know, DOD doing its thing, kind of smashing um, innovation. So, um, but I, again, I really became to value the, the, the process of, what I had learned in helping other people. And that's what led me to write the book, Eating Glass, The Inner Journey Through Failure and Renewal. And that title comes from an Elon Musk quote you may have heard, um, being an entrepreneur is like eating glass and staring into the abyss of death. So um, we, we kind of joke about that, but it's, you know, he said that for a reason. And what I try and do in the book is just walk through, these are some of the chapter titles, a lot of these milestones on the journey. So if someone is facing what I did, that you've got kind of a guide to walk you through those seasons of how you get through the other side and learn something on the way. So that is my story and uh, I will take a breath there. You, uh, you, you cleverly anticipated I was gonna ask you to, to talk about the origin of the name because I love that. And um, I want to you know, take a moment to acknowledge <laughs> the guts it takes to write a book like that and to publish a book like that and to put it out there. Um, and not just a book about failure, but using your own personal life experience um, to walk us through those lessons. Um, and it comes across obviously very authentic, uh, but just wanted to, you know, appreciate the bravery that that requires. Um, and uh, before we before we get into the questions, um, we would love to hear uh, maybe a passage from uh, early in the book um, to get people to get people uh, excited and in the right. Uh, in the right uh, mindset. Um, there's one about failing fast and failing often and the mantra of Silicon Valley. Can we hear that from, uh, from the author's lips? Yeah, okay, thanks. <clears throat> so this is from the introduction that kind of sets the stage for why I wrote the book. Fail fast, fail often, fail forward. That is the mantra in Silicon Valley. We celebrate failure like Viking raiders, toasting comrades fallen in glorious battle. We clank our frothy steins and hail their courage and honor. We weave epic tales of their battlefield prowess and the journeys of their immortal spirits to Valhalla. We yearn for a death half as good as our fallen heroes. Any real warrior knows a battlefield death is not glorious. It is stupid mistakes, ill chance, screaming misery, urine and shit, fear and indignity. Dismembered youth strewn along the beach sobbed for their mothers. We wrap battlefield death in legend, not because it is so glorious, but because it's so terrible. We construct the legends, the myths, and the rituals so we can tame our own terror. Behind each of those gruff bearded faces, a petrified child peers into the abyss of his own mortality. Will we have the courage to die so well? We clash our mugs, bellow at death, and applaud our own bravery. Our modern world is not so different. We celebrate failure, not because it is glorious, but because it's devastating. The vast majority of startups fail. If you peer behind the slick pitch decks and product prototypes, large numbers of entrepreneurs are tossing and turning in bed, wondering how to pay their employees when the cash runs out next month. 
They vomit in the toilet before meetings with VCs who might or might not give their dying company another three months of runway. Even as they proclaim world-changing solutions on tech blogs, terror and self-doubt tear their world asunder. So we beat our chests and make our toasts to failure, that slayer of men and women who will rise again in eternity. That was powerful. Get things started on a cheery note. <laughs> that was really powerful. Um, you spoke so much truth in that and put a lot of color to it. Like I, I saw a clear picture of devastation and why we are so drawn to it. So you're absolutely right about that. Um, so I'd actually asked a question earlier. I'd be curious to know when you started writing this, were you in the process of healing? Were you still completely devastated or where were you when you started writing? Yeah, that's a great question, Rebecca. I started writing for myself processing through what I was going through. I, I literally would sit down to work. I, I think all of us probably here are high achievers or ambitious people who are used to just, you get a setback, you just crush through it and just keep working and do the next thing. And that's how I usually operate. And I was sitting down one day trying to work on my dissertation, my next big thing I had to do. And I just couldn't do anything. I just, the words wouldn't come and I was just blocked. And I just opened a random file and just blah. And I think I wrote that that passage I just read to you, I wrote, I wrote a whole introduction chapter in one sitting, just trying to vent what I was feeling. And periodically, whenever I was feeling stuck, I would just do that, I'd open the file and just write something else. And I did that for a number of months and later shared that with some people who were like, hey, this really speaks to me. You should think about turning this into a book. So I, I went through a number of months of kind of the, the really raw, gritty, painful stuff. But then over really the next the book continued to unfold over the next five years. This, this fire that was in 2015, and I finished writing the book, the first draft of it this last spring. So it really did emerge over the five-year process of growing through this, starting another team, going through the failure process a second time, uh, and, and really taking the lessons and growing and actually finding kind of a redemptive thread in the whole story. The biggest thing I took from uh, you reading that passage, Mark, in addition to just the power of the message was, when's your audiobook version coming out? <laughs> and is it going to be read by the author? It's on my to-do list. Yes. Uh, I think performing an audiobook is a new skill I'll have to learn, so I'm not going to rush it. But yes, I do want to do that. It sounds like this was a form of therapy to get past some of the toughest times and and your failure. Um, I'm, I'm similar. I write uh, to get through what I consider failure or to get through those feelings. Do you have any tips that you could give us here on the call when it comes to, you know, your type of therapy maybe writing? Um, but I think every could, everybody could probably have their own unique form of therapy to get through these failures and reach that next level? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's a highly individual process. I'm, I don't feel qualified to advise others necessarily. I'm, I'm actually married to a therapist who, you know, keeps me in line with, uh, you know, what, what current practices and research. But the first thing I say, and part of the reason I share this message, 
step one is to just be willing to do the work. I really wasn't sure how the book would be received when I released it because I know these experiences are common, but very few people talk about them the way that I do. And is there something wrong with me? There is something uniquely like reflective about me or is it, and other people don't feel this way or is it that I'm just sort of uniquely willing to explore something others don't always, or at least don't talk about. And, and what I've kind of come to after putting the book out, getting feedback and kind of sensing where it's being read and where it's not, uh, I think crushing experiences are universal and some people kind of run away from that and just don't want to look at it again. They, they do move on to the next thing and they never really process what they've been through. And that might work for a while, but I do think that catches up with you at some point in your life. And you also miss out on an opportunity to really grow. So we've kind of talked about the negative side of my message, but the book follows a very hopeful arc, I think, of over these five years, I learned so much about myself, about my values, about enduring and resting in kind of my values through the course of this journey. And what you find is people who do do the inner work can really deepen and enrich their lives and their relationships in a way that you don't get without going through a failure experience. But you have to be willing to do the work, um, the inner work of, of sitting with those experiences and reflecting on them. So that's my, my first piece of advice is just allocate time and energy. And part of my process too was it's easy to sort of hide from certain emotions or feelings or experiences that just almost seem too painful to look at. And one of the things I had to learn was to kind of turn around and look those things in the eyes because that's how you get through them. And probably the best example of that was actually releasing the book. Uh, Michael mentioned, you know, must have been kind of an act of bravery to do this. And uh, it was a very anguished about six months of, uh, is this book garbage? Am I going to wreck my life and my reputation by releasing it or, or not? And what, what I realized eventually is I felt so much shame about my own story, which is a, you know, a good therapy word, um, that it would have been really easy to bury the book and, and just move on and do the next thing. But I was, I eventually realized how sort of afraid I was to tell my own story and to kind of claim it. And once I did that and just made the decision to release the book and just fully own the story, uh, it's been great to see the reception and, and how it's helped others, but also it was really helpful for me to just feel all that kind of shame over the story drain away. And it became really a source of power for me. So um, I would advise others doing these things like getting things into the light and owning them where you can be fully integrated as a person and own your story is is a hugely um helpful thing in life so i was gonna i was gonna ask a question earlier and then this it's a perfect segue because we've danced around it in in uh, just the last couple minutes in your answer um but what had stood out to me in the passage you read i think is um you included that comment that you know all of these startups fail the vast majority um, the numbers are clear and we all know that we all nod along in agreement uh, we all know that when we start our own startups um, but we don't really talk about it or, or not like like you are and the reality of failure um, you know so, so it's something that we don't talk about which therefore makes it harder to navigate and it's quite possible that you know some of the silicon valley wisdom that you refer to sets us up for a hard fall or sets us up to be 
uh, in a tough spot to process it. So maybe why do you think it is so hard to talk about or not talked about? Um, and what do you think about conventional wisdom and how we can how we can deal with that? Yeah, let me take the second part first. Um, and, and this is another reason I, I like to talk about this now. Uh, there are so many incentives around, how do I say this, risk-taking, I guess, in building a startup and in selling a message that people want to hear, right? Like, I could have titled my book, 10 Tips to Fail Your Way to Success, and I guarantee I would sell a thousand times more copies because that's the book everybody wants to buy. Uh, and I read some of those books too. Not quite that cheesy, but there's plenty of good books out there that I leaned on for inspiration and strength when I needed them. Um, but, but you've also got a whole economy based on, you know, if you're a venture capitalist, you're going you're gonna to bet on 100 companies. 10 of them might make it into the black and one of them might be your unicorn. And that unicorn will pay off the other 90. Uh, that's the math of entrepreneurship. If you're in the government context, if you're an entrepreneur in a big organization, it's easy for the leader to say, gosh, we, we know we need to do something. Let's tell our people to innovate. And people hear that message and get excited and go do something. But the, the founder or the innovator becomes a carrier of so much of the risk, right? Um, if you're a venture capitalist, and I'm not picking on VCs, but there's a whole industry around this of uh, you can have a, a a portfolio of bets and if some of them pay off you're good and that's great but the founder ends up taking on a ton of risk um, that's that's incentivized by this message of you can do anything so when and especially in there's a lot of distortion in today's market where it's so easy to just pour money into companies trying to pump them up and to be the next unicorn uh, you can end up way over committed um, and, and once you start taking money and other people start having a stake in things things develop a momentum that's very hard to slow down. That was one of my big lessons with Uplift is we were actually doing really well, I think. Like we'd achieved a lot, but this momentum took over. We were going way too fast and it's really hard to pump the brakes. And you don't want to be the guy that says, or the gal that says, let's slow down. Um, so then when things crash, the world moves on and the entrepreneur is kind of left in the wreckage, right? Um, so there's actually really interesting movements underway to make mental health of founders kind of a priority like in the venture community i was talking with a guy named jake chapman last week at a uh what's their i forget the name of their venture capital firm but they've sort of built into their process of funding companies access to resources like coaching and therapy and whatever that are firewalls so the vcs don't don't see it they don't know what their founders are doing but these resources are there and they, they do it partly because they care about their founders, but it's also good business to make sure your founders don't burn out. And they've identified founder burnout as one of the biggest risks of early stage companies. So there's a nice model there to, you know, prioritize taking care of people. And if we take care of people, everybody wins. An idea that, you know, us in the military and government know a lot about and talk a lot about. Um, so that's where some of the Silicon Valley, you know, wisdom comes in. and. Um, a lot of that wisdom has merit, but it needs to be tempered with, with wisdom. I mean, any principle you give, uh, there's probably some equally opposite principle that's also true. And, and the judgment of a, an entrepreneur is, you know, knowing which wisdom to apply in which context. Um, and I don't remember the first part of your question, but hopefully that helped. <laughs> yeah, that was, 
that was excellent and uh and jake is a good friend of deaf he's spoken to i see yeah uh, yeah i think it's alpha bridge yeah he's alpha he's spoken at a lot of our events and, and is a good friend of deaf um dan i think you had a, a next question prime so instead of revisiting my first one we'll just go to dan <laughs> oh it's all good thanks uh so mark one of the big things that i took away after reading this book was i really appreciate it whenever you get like a really quality book or a song that's so well written or a poem that you know wherever you are at that point in time you read it or you listen to it and it has a completely different meaning from you for you than the last time you read it right and and i can honestly say reading your book that if i pick that up again in 18 months or 24 months from now which i know i will it's going to have different applicability to my life and it's going to speak to where i am in that moment you know, just like picking up Dale Carnegie again for the umpteenth time, you go, don't, there's, there's why I just messed this one up last week, right? But your story is really one of, of resiliency and, and picking yourself up and figuring out how to reassemble those pieces. Even whenever everybody keeps telling you, just keep charging ahead, you got this. And you're like, no, 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 I'm a wreck right now, right? That has so much applicability. I think it's going to come up again and again. I know for me personally, moving forward. So, what are some of those uh, books or stories or songs for you that, that are like those high quality repeat listens and reads? That's a great question. I appreciate the kind words. I, um, <clears throat> I'll say a few things in response to that. One is there's definitely a trade-off when you're creating something. And many people in here are probably creators of going for the quick commercial sell or the enduring work. Um, and, and the hard, brutal truth is the enduring work just doesn't typically have the success, at least early on, that the commercial work does, which that's today's struggle for me. <laughs> um, but there's a really good book about this if you're a creator. Ryan Holiday, who many of you probably are familiar with his works on stoicism, he's got a book called Perennial Seller about this trade-off. So for someone who wants to create good work, he's really an advocate of, you know, put in the 25 drafts it takes to write something that endures. And so that book was an inspiration for me as I was trying to get this book together the way I wanted it. Um, <clears throat> Gosh, I, I think there's a lot of things I return to as I get older. I'm, my reading has shifted mostly towards classical literature and into poetry more and things that, that do have that kind of enduring quality to them. A lot of authors that have spoken to me a lot that I've turned to in the last five years have been people who write about inner journeys, as I call it. Um, a lot of them are writing in kind of a midlife season, and that's a thread in the book that that some people may pick up and some may not yet, but you might later of there's often this trajectory in life where we are pursuing all the education, the experiences, the achievements and, and building reputation. And then something breaks, something gives, and you have to sort of shift into this deeper questions of well, what what am I really building here? What's my legacy and, and what are my values? And uh, and that was a big part of my story because this whole thing happened between the ages of 35 and 40, kind of the early side of this window in life when this happens. So authors who, who write about that have been really helpful. Uh, one of them is David Brooks, columnist for New York Times. He's written The Road to Character and uh, The Second Mountain. He develops this idea of two mountains in life. The, the first is the Achievement Mountain, and then there's the Second Mountain, uh, which I use that metaphor in the book. Uh, the poet David White, W-H-Y-T-E. I use one of his poems to open the book. Just knocked me on my back when I discovered him fairly recently. I'm not 
typically a big reader of poetry, but his books just spoke to me. He, he was a guy who kind of walked away from a more traditional career to write poetry and really writes powerfully about inner journeys. He's got an entire book about work and like what, in a very like soulful, rich way of the importance of work in our lives called Crossing the Unknown Sea. Uh, and he's got a little thin book of poetry called The Essential David White that I liked. Um, Ryan Holiday's books on stoicism were helpful. I, I read those over and over. Uh, Stephen Pressfield, um, his book, The Art of or The War of Art, uh, is a classic, and and he's more in that you can do anything. Uh, but he's also a guy who's really taken his licks, and he's got a very balanced view that I found very helpful. So I open his books a lot. Um, Jerry Colonna has been sort of a model. He was a, form, a very successful founder and, and investor who went on to become a coach that kind of pioneered this whole world of bringing inner work to the executive America. And he was an inspiration. He, he's, he wrote a book called Reboot, but also just because he's willing to talk this way and show that there is a need for it, even if it largely plays out in secret. Um, so those are, a, those are a few. We'll have, to, we'll have to work to put these in the show notes for the podcast yeah. episodes. And can go back and refer to them. There's yeah. a treasure trove right yeah. there. Um, so party wants to, to to start taking this specifically into um, the defense innovation context and applicability mm -hmm. to you know DEF and its members and what we do. But one more one more general theme before we kind of dive in on that. Um, let's talk about burnout. You have this quote that stood out to me that I highlighted in the book that burnout is really about unrequited love. Uh, which I thought was super powerful. So I'm going to ask you to expand on that a little bit for the audience. Um, but also then just talking about pacing ourselves and staying healthy to avoid burnout. You also had a really good um, way of expressing health as um, I think you wrote about like the absence of, we think about it as the absence of disease, um, but there are other ways to think about it. So maybe if you could hit on those two real quick and talk to us about burnout. Yeah, no, for sure. So I think most of us sort of reflexively think about burnout as just doing too much and needing to take our foot off the gas. That was how I thought about it. And I tended to think over a short time horizon. Uh, I, I very distinctly remember my parents who again are on the call warning me, you know, you be careful because you're taking on a lot. And I felt at the time like, no, I've got this. And I was managing day to day over the months, I realized it's like an athlete who overtrains. You're doing the damage in invisible ways over the months to a point that you can't recover from it. And that's why vacations don't work. Um, you just stressed on vacation. Um, but I came across this book as I was researching burnout that defined it as unrequited love. With Uplift Aeronautics and what we were trying to do, there was this humanitarian vision that was so powerful for all of us who were involved and we were working with Syrian partner organizations, we felt that we were making legitimate impact here. That passion fueled us, but the passion did, didn't love us back. There came a point where we were not getting the support we anticipated. We were just hitting more and more roadblocks. Supporters we need weren't there. The, the you know, even some of the, the, by the end, I wasn't sure if we'd, read the, the need correctly or not. So all these things were happening where it's like, we, we gave our hearts to this and, and it's not happening. And it's the sense of, you know, loving something or somebody that's not returned and it kind of breaks your heart. 
And I think that's a unique danger for someone who's not just seeking profit, but who's motivated by passion, by a cause, by the mission, words that probably ring true for anyone in deaf, because that's a powerful currency and it's easily, you know, how many of us in the DOD have said, you want innovation? I'll go innovate for you. We go do this thing and then the system absolutely crushes us, right? I've had that happen over and over again um, because the constraints were under and so you gotta be really careful and, and recognize that's where burnout comes in. And the answer to that is, yes, you gotta be smart and slow down, but it's also um, being wise about how you maybe give your heart and also drawing some boundaries so you're not in the end kind of broken by that. And, and if you need a change, it, it may be kind of getting off the mission for a little while or doing something different. Uh, to your point about health, what I kind of came to is seeing health as a holistic positive that we have to seek. Uh, I've always been really healthy and really grateful for that. I just took my health for granted, but I've had to be much more intentional in the last few years about seeking health. So it's like building those daily habits and disciplines that serve you, living in accordance with your values, having healthier relationships, physical exercise is definitely part of that, but it's, it's sort of building a life of routines that keep us healthy and whole people and as opposed to just sort of running on default and then exercising the minimum amount we need to or whatever or to avoid stress it, you know it's a much more of a positive seeking after like who we want to be in the lives we want to live and i'm much more careful now about like with rogue squadron really managing a work-life balance but also as a leader urging my people to do that because I had all these people working for me that would gladly burn themselves out. They, they don't know any better. They love the mission and uh, had to really kind of try to instill that as a value to, you know, let's pace ourselves for a marathon here. And that's another thing I'll point out. If you're a leader, if you've got people who are passionate, it's very easy to accidentally abuse their passion. Uh, I spent a lot of time feeling a lot of guilt about some of our volunteers, people who really worked hard for me to the point of burnout uh, and, and they, they will say it's not my fault, but um, it was really easy to just let that run unconstrained. I'll say that's something I need to watch out for. If, if you don't know already, uh, um, there's listening deaf as an all volunteer team and uh, to, to your point, they run on passion, passion for the mission, passion for the community and, and the people in it and what they're doing. Um, and I've got to make sure I don't, I don't let them burn out because, because they will, because they care so much. Um, okay. So, so as promised, let's, uh, now take that turn to deaf specifically, um, to defense innovation, to, um, the stifling bureaucracy and how you find meaning and joy and satisfaction in that. Um, you've been doing this uh, for a long time, Mark, and so you know it better than most. Um, what are your thoughts now specifically on, on those unique challenges? And, and in DEF, we talk about like taking um, this long view of like generational culture change. Can we move the needle on culture in, in an uh, enduring and lasting way that, that lasts long um, past any of us volunteers, you know, are, are here? Um, so let me, let me ask you for your wise thoughts on that. Yeah, so anyone who's worked in this space, and I know most people here have, know how frustrating it is that we navigate 
such hard constraints on everything. I um, remember going to a talk by, um, um, blanking on the name, Silicon Valley bigwig, and he's talking about, you know, when government people come to him, he, he explains all the reasons that Silicon Valley works, all the things you do about building teams and people and culture and all this and that. And then the government people say, well, what if you can't do any of those things, then how do you innovate? Um, and that was kind of the joke because that's our world, right? Um, I'm a huge believer in putting the right people in teams. Well, how do you do that when you can't hire any of the people you want and your entire executive team gets fired every two years and you can't pick your replacements? That's basically the reality of uh, leading an active duty team. Uh, you got about a two year life cycle before the system rolls over and you can't pick your replacements. So I think acknowledging those constraints up front is key. If you, if you don't know it's coming, it'll hit you like a freight train. So, you know, we use the word insurgency a lot. I know Def has embodied that, you know, the virtuous insurgency. I've always described my teams as insurgent teams. You really have to be. And one thing I'll say is being an insurgent has its own skill set. Uh, I read, I keep talking about Silicon Valley wisdom, but business wisdom in general, yes, I read those and there's lots of value there. But we operate in a totally different context with its own rules. How you access power, people in power, how you access resources, how you leverage contracting, how you leverage talent management rules. And part of being effective is becoming an expert at those games. It's not sexy. It's not fun. It's way more fun to go, you know, have a design thinking seminar. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Or like, you know, go on a tour of SpaceX. Those things are all great. But it's the people who really know how to work the machine that can be successful. So that takes just a lot of dedication and willingness to do hard work. Um, the system I've found, you know, we all have those things that are just infuriating. I've spent plenty of time being enraged at the Department of Defense but it will take us to a decision point. We can get hopelessly bitter and stew in anger, or we can somehow make our peace with that and try and be effective despite that. And this kind of gets back to the themes of the book and burnout. You know, if you love the system, the DOD will not love you back. You'll get some kudos and you'll get some rewards, but the system at the end of the day will just run you over and doesn't care, <laughs> uh, no matter how good you are. So uh, being okay with that and learning to find your value in kind of other ways having a vibrant life outside of work, relationships outside of work, the, the grassroots communities, places like DEF. Uh, I'm a really big believer in parallel communities that operate outside the hierarchy uh, to allow you to do things you can't do in the hierarchy. That's again, why we built Uplift Aeronautics as a nonprofit. Um, we could do things we couldn't do in the system, but you've got to be able to find your happiness despite those constraints and just accept that it's the train that you work in. And it's kind of the price of being a government innovator. I don't know if I have a question as much as I do a comment. <laughs> I can try to twist it into a question. It just, it's really resonating. Like it's fun. I recently told somebody that I feel like I've been chewed up and spit out by the DOD and I've never even had a paycheck from the DOD in my life, right? Like I'm somehow in this world. Um, it exists. Uh, I I've always consider myself an intrapreneur. I'm technically an entrepreneur myself. So when you were talking about burnout, um, I hate to go back to that, but I, I just keep thinking about it. You know, is there a place where you would say it is safe for an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur to know, okay, there is an, a stopping point, right? Is there a place where you would stop as opposed to 
waiting until you burn out, right? And there's this mental game, but is there a stopping point? Because as an entrepreneur, I, I find more often than not that there is for some, and it doesn't necessarily mean you're failing and everybody experiences failure differently. Some may, what you've considered failure may not be failure for somebody else. So how do we know when to stop, you know? Yeah, that's a great question. And I actually have a chapter in the book called Quitting that's about that decision because we have all this conventional wisdom, never, never, never give up. And um, the reality is that the counterpoint there is you got to know when to quit. <laughs> you got to know when to quit with your head. You got to know when something's not working and write off, you know, write off the loss. And, and I also think in a career, this is another part of maybe managing a, a, an entrepreneurial career, there's times and seasons. And, and I actually think the military kind of gets this right. You never command longer than two years, usually, and then you go do something different. Go to school, go to staff, where you know, you're about to your limit, we're gonna give you something else to do. And I see people who work as civilians attached to government or whatever, they kind of do the same thing. They go do a stint in government and they go back to a different life somewhere. Uh, I think there's value in that, and not all of us have that luxury to choose. You know, I'm in a I'm in a kind of a refreshing season now, being a professor with a lot of time um, after Rogue Squadron, which I think I probably needed. So I don't think there's any shame in we don't have to use the word quitting, but in you know moving on and transitioning, and and you know our ultimate goal for anything would be sustainability, where the work we create outlives us. That's another one of the unique challenges in DoD <laughs> because again, the, the talent continuity challenges. But yeah, knowing, knowing when to move on is, is hugely important and we should never be shamed for that or you know, made to feel like we can't do that. So I got a, a, a kind of a long question here, it's multi-part, but uh, from the audience, there's a really good one here. So if your book could change the culture of Silicon Valley, would you want it to? And then as you think through that, what kind of mentorship or advisor or community do you think that the book would help create or to give back to? And would you have joined or helped sustain yourself longer uh, or help you get out faster if you would have had a community like that available to you when you were going through uh, the period of failure? Yeah, those are great questions. So yes, I do hope it changes the culture. And what I would hope is that we get younger entrepreneurs, founders, and really anyone thinking earlier about just being wise about how you lead and, and do things. And, uh, and then also that when you, if things fall apart and you find yourself in the wilderness, it shouldn't be the first time that you're scrambling for resources to know what to do with yourself and, and what you're experiencing. So, at least having some exposure to like, hey, you know, here's here's part of the journey. And, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, like you're going to take your licks and summer might be pretty hard. And just having those conversations is really what I would want. I, I'm not thinking about this so much as institutional changes or discouraging entrepreneurship, more just about culture, the informal conversations, the, the mentoring at the bar, the, you know, whatever, the VCs, the founders, all that, just talking about like, here, here's the reality. It's a gladiator sport. And, uh, and, if things get hard, like it's okay, here's, here's what happened. And, and just storytelling is such a powerful way to do that. And there are people out there doing this. Um, Brad Feld, uh, founder of Venture Capitalist, been really open about earlier 
challenges he had. Um, you'll find people here and there around Silicon Valley doing it around those cultures. Uh, it, what's interesting is you're seeing this happening in the, the commercial working world more now. This hasn't really penetrated government that I can tell. Like you don't, you might come across conversations about Brene Brown or something, but you don't really hear a lot of, you know, senior leaders talking about some of the maybe the challenges of the inner journey of being in command and the responsibility and whatnot. So, you know, I, and I, I'm not saying that we need to just turn everything into a kumbaya session, but there's a place to maybe shift our culture to be more open about this. Um, so I hope that answers the question. Yeah, I, I definitely think that helped us shed some light on some things because there is this notion that, uh, you know, I mean, you look at like kind of thing, the, the culture of SpaceX and things like that, where it's just work yourself to death day in and day out. And, and, and the, the young innovators are so anxious to do that at all costs, right? And, and unfortunately, it does cost many people everything, but we never hear about those people unless somehow through some twist of fate, they end up on top of the mountain. But oftentimes they get buried under it. Yeah, there's a strong survivorship bias in books and cult in stuff talking about business for sure and entrepreneurship especially. And yeah, the SpaceX is an interesting example. If you've read like Ashley Vance's biography of Elon Musk, their whole talent management model is based on just burning through 21 year olds. Like they work them to death and they, they spit them out and move on to the next batch. And I, I don't even necessarily think that's wrong but everyone who goes into that should be clear eyed about what they're doing. If I was 21 and a civilian, I just might do that. You know, it'd be pretty cool to be part of SpaceX, but I would want to know what it costs. And, and I think we owe it to, um, uh, you know, help those people have a you know, soft transition, but we also have people who are, you know, 17 years old, taking out a second mortgage on mom and dad's home to finance their new social media app. And, you know, there's a lot of that kind of risk taking, uh, you know, you look at the, the Bitcoin, or I mean, the, the stock buffoonery, if you could go with GameStop and people who just make really silly choices, riding a wave of what people are telling them to do. And when you get in the startup world, I do see a lot of that. We have to be really careful about to not set people up for that. I think that that really, that's really insightful, the, the being clear-eyed on it and, and making that decision, which you can, but knowing the costs. And then also something you said earlier in the air answer to the question about um, we, we, we can know that we're going to encounter these types of situations. So go in armed, go in ready with some, some resources and some, um, some thought already put into it. So you're prepared, um, versus just encountering it, you know, viscerally for the first time. So that was a great segue to our next audience question, um, which is from Steven, um, as you've helped members of your team discover ways to keep from burning out, um, have they ever responded as if you're trying to hold them back or that you're projecting? Um, and I think, I think you got some stuff about this in the book. Uh, and do you use a slower process that allows them time to explore themselves to reach this idea on their own? Um, can you help kind of help them reach that uh, on their own? So thanks Stephen, for the question. Yeah, good questions. So to the second part of your question, I think ultimately you get wise by living, you have to experience things and uh, every, everyone's gonna be on their own journey. Like I, I'm not trying to force a particular like, paradigm on anybody. And yeah, when you're young, you're gonna work hard and push hard and burn out and learn from it. And I think that's just part of life. I just try and maybe offer some thoughts 
around the margins. Um, but I think ultimately, you know, human beings all kind of go through similar processes in life of learning similar lessons over and over again, and that's just life. Um, but how, like how I led with Rogue Squadron, it, again, it wasn't forceful. It wasn't like I turned out the lights at five o'clock and made people go home. We had guys working nights and weekends. We had guys developing software on Christmas Eve going downrange. And, and again, I don't think that was bad. Like there was times and places to surge. Uh, I'm glad we have those guys. But I would also warn them about, you know, be careful. I, I had a really, really good um, assistant director, lead engineer, just phenomenal. But he had a baby coming and I, I could just see he was going to set himself up for that months. You know, he was managing day by day, but he was setting himself up for over the months burnout. So we talked a lot about it and it was an on, ongoing dialogue and he always wanted to push harder than I did. And we made it work. I was never forceful, but like things I would do, for example, if I had some thought on a Saturday evening, I would just not text it. It'd be really easy to jump on Slack and send it. And I had to start thinking like, well, what's the downstream implication of any piece of communication that I send? What's it do to someone's concentration, their family? And um, maybe shielding team members from certain things. Uh, not that I wasn't being transparent, but like I just, you know, not saturating them with concerns that they didn't need to worry about, those kind of things. Brilliant. Um, tons, tons of applicability because I think about how I might apply that to um, how we work together as, as deaf volunteers um, in the Navy context, um, in the startup context, absolutely. Um, we'll, we'll take one more question uh, here for, that we have from the audience, and then um, we'll actually transition and uh, we'll, we'll pause the recording uh, for those listening, but those who are live in the audience, um, we'll bring you up onto the, the quote-unquote stage so you can hang out with Mark and uh, turn on your video and audio. So once again, if you're listening to this podcast, remember, you should join DEF uh, at def.org and, and start coming to these live. Um, so for our last question um, from Peter, I really like the one word chapter titles in your book. I agree, good point, Peter. Uh, what chapter was the most difficult for you to write? Um, that's a good question. I had to think about that one for a little bit. I think it was actually the afterward because what I, what I alluded to in my story, I got this second chance with Rogue Squadron and, and really we, we built a great team that built that thing into a powerhouse and it ended in a merger that did not go the way I wanted. And that's all I'll say about that. But that happened about a year ago, right as quarantine was starting and I was getting rid of PCS and, uh, as, and it really brought me right back into that wilderness place of, well, gosh, here I am again. And that was when I, you know, I'm, I'm in quarantine, I'm kind of between projects and I started really getting to work finishing the book. But the, the negative side of that experience was so raw. I had to figure out how do I tell this story where I'm not just bitter or angry and, and how can I be sure I'm not doing this out of vengeance? Like the early drafts uh, were pretty raw and I was naming names <laughs> uh, of things that I was not happy about. And I had to go through many, many drafts. And I, you know, I'd kind of build this crescendo up in the book of positively processing through my experience and having a hopeful future and direction. And then this new thing happens. And I don't want the book to just end on a downer. So I had to spend a lot of time. It wasn't the words, it was my own experience of, okay, how do how do I make sense of this story and tell it in a way where I'm not captive to, you know, anger but can still be hopeful about that experience. 
you said earlier in the evening that that you uh, hope the book followed a hopeful arc and it does it, it absolutely does um let's actually end with uh if you wouldn't mind there's an, another passage from the book that we talked about beforehand uh, if, if we can get your uh your dulcet tones again on the record <laughs> preparing you for that audiobook recording i'm gonna uh, yeah, let's hear it. I'm going to read a, a different passage we talked about because um, I do want to end on a, a hopeful note. So one of the big themes is as, as you grow through life, you discover that success and failure is this wave. It's always up and down. It's just that's how life is. Um, and that's that's kind of where the book, um, you know, moves to. So I'll read a portion about that. I, I have this whole chapter kind of comparing, like looking at like evolution and just the amount of chaos out there in the world of stars colliding and exploding and life dying and new things emerging. And at the end of that, I write this. This view of the world becomes almost comforting. You are not such a big deal after all, and that is okay. You faithfully play your part in the cosmic symphony. You make investments, plant seeds, and cast your bets on steps towards a better future. How much you plant defines your legacy. This takes patience. Your legacy may not be apparent for years, if ever. Many talented, devoted people never see the fruit of their labors in their lifetimes. You cannot live with the expectation that your work will be redeemed. That only sets you up for disappointment. You must let today be enough and then delight when one of your scattered seeds unexpectedly blooms. Taking the long view changes how you approach daily life. First, you learn to view both successes and setbacks as mere milestones on a much longer journey. Any cause worth fighting for will be a winding road with many ups and downs. That holds true whether you pursue universal healthcare, quantum computing, interplanetary space travel, racial equality, or the renewal of your local community. Second, once you realize how tenuous success and failure can be, you look for joy and purpose at a deeper level. Far from draining your energy away from your work, this reprioritization enriches and energizes it. Third, even as you pursue your biggest dreams, you learn to plant other seeds and cultivate opportunities along the way. You invest in the people you work with. You help them achieve their own goals and dreams. Even if everything else hits the fan, you can rest assured that your legacy will live on through these exemplary human beings. I want to tell the story of some of my volunteers, one of them is here tonight. Uh, Uplift is only a memory now, but these stories bring everything full circle. They show that nothing given generously and wholeheartedly in this world is ever wasted. I feel like that's like a sermon just compressed into like two and a half minutes of, of awesome audio right there. Thanks. So thank, thanks a lot, Mark. That was really, really awesome. Uh, thank you so much, Mike and Becca, for helping to uh, answer some great or ask some great questions along the way. Thanks to our audience who fed in some some questions to help us out whenever we were just like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just kind of in awe right now. I'm not really sure what to ask or what to say. So uh, thanks a lot. Uh, I really appreciate everyone here. Again, mark your calendars. Third Thursday of every month at 6.30 p.m. Third Thursdays with Def DC Agora. You can catch us live on Eventbrite, hopefully live and in person here somewhere in the DC area in the near future. And uh, hopefully we'll capture some of the highlights in an upcoming episode of our Minimally Viable podcast. And uh, if you don't know what that is, go out to def.org slash join 
and you'll get roped into the ecosystem where you can find out more and keep up to date with what's happening here in DEF. With that, I think uh, we'll go ahead and uh, close out this part of the recording and uh, open up for a free-for-all session with all of our friends and neighbors in the deaf community. Sounds great. Thank you, Mark. Beautiful words and uh, really special to have you with us tonight. Thank you for hosting. It's my pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to listen. We love ideas and feedback, so feel free to send your thoughts to hello at deaf.org. For more great content and to stay in the loop about community events and activities, follow us on social media and subscribe to our monthly newsletter. Everyone plays a part in building the innovative national security culture we want to see. To find where you fit, just go to deaf.org slash join. That's def.org slash join.